Welcome to this Horizon CIO podcast with me, Mark Chillingworth. This week's podcast is coming to you from a temple of sporting greatness. We are at the headquarters of Williams Grand Prix Engineering, home of the Williams Martini Racing Team. And if I may, I'm just going to quickly take a moment to describe the environment. I'm on a round table with some great CIOs, and around us are the Formula One cars that have made Williams one of the foremost teams in Formula One. They're the cars I grew up with. They were driven by Damon Hill, David Coulthard, Nigel Mansell, Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost in some of the most exciting races I ever got to watch uh, and it's an amazing to be in this location. And we are joined by CIOs from cricket, rugby, football and of course Formula One to discuss that team player that fans may never get to hear of, the CIO. To discuss being a sporting CIO, I am joined by Graham Hackland, CIO here at Williams, Damien Smith, Head of IT at the English and Wales Cricket Board, Matthew Reynolds, IT Director at Southampton Football Club, and Mike Bondique, an interim sports CIO currently engaged with Bath Rugby, the European Tour, and AFC Wimbledon and Leeds United. Welcome all. Graham, Formula One is alongside the Olympics, a sport played out on a global pitch. Tell us a little about Williams, your remit as CIO, and this amazing team that you work with. Thanks, Mark, and, and welcome to you all here. Um, so Williams is celebrated 40 years in Formula One last year, um, entering our 41st season. Uh, I came along, or this is my fifth season now with Williams, um, to help with the digital transformation. Uh, whatever it was going to take to get Williams back to the front of the grid. We looked at people, process, technology, and we've been on a very ambitious trajectory over the last few years to try and uh, put all of the tools and technology in place that help the great people that we have uh, to get us back to the front of the grid. and. The cars that you described, the championship winning cars, we want Sir Frank Williams to experience that again. Uh, Damien, you're here from, from a governing body. Tell us about uh, ETB uh, and what the remit of the head of IT at uh, that organisation is. Sure. Um, so the ECB is the national governing body for cricket, so we're very similar to the FA for football and the RFU for rugby. Um, we have a couple of notable differences from those organisations in that we don't own a venue. Um, we put on cricket matches at any one of 18 first-class counties. So um, we manage to tour our game, if you like, around the country and, and reach lots of different people. Um, and the other thing is we don't have a separate premiership. So there's no separate Premier League. We are responsible for our professional game. So that gives us a lot of advantages of running the game of cricket at the elite level, all through the professional game and at the recreational level. So my remit in that is uh, to cover all of the um, IT um, for those different areas of the game and for the governance of the game as well. Matthew, how different is the remit as a CIO for a club in the Premiership, the, the greatest football league there is? Yes, well, thank you. Um, I'm responsible for technology and also digital transformation at Southampton Football Club, and we all face the same real challenges. Um, for me, if we look at our strategic differentiator, which is taking an academy player from an under nine all the way through to a Premier League player, uh, the data insights that that creates, and also our commercial activities. So we are a small club. We were, cannot compete financially like the top, top players. Um, so we have to do things cleverly by growing fan engagement and generating more money through commercial activities. And then for me, my other priority is key operational. So um, Graham touched on it with people and process is through technology, through automation, to become a better, more efficient club. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. You are currently working uh, in rugby, uh, football and uh, golf, if I'm correct. Um, 
following your premiership career at West Ham, as a technologist, how, how does it feel to have a different shaped ball <laughs> from your from your premiership football days? Yeah, it's been it's been nice to immerse myself into into different sports and, and actually see a little bit of behind the scenes and the the journey between that inside the ropes and outside the ropes piece. I think. Uh, much like many of the other guys and, and in, in the sporting realm, most people are awakening to digital transformation and, and what that looks like. But within sporting clubs uh, in particular, perhaps that's uh, a challenge for, for someone to sit over the top of at club level. If you look at the business units, you're running a, a multi-million pound retail uh, business. You're also running a doctor's surgery at your training ground with the medical staff. Uh, and the professional game development of players and academies right through to delivering a stadium on a match day. So uh, it's been nice to get out into into different environments and see how different sporting organisations and how different clubs are trying to tackle that challenge. Thank you all. It's, it's, it's great to have those different levels of, of, of teams, of, of governing bodies and, and various different sports here. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting how you, you've all mentioned digital transformation. And, and I, when I was preparing for this podcast, what struck me was how we're seeing the luxury goods market hire some really top level CIOs as they move away from being very dependent on retailers to a very di- understanding they have a direct to the consumer model uh, coming to them. Is, is sport going through that? Are you becoming a much more direct relationship with your with your fans or, and, and what have you? So I think in F1 we've probably been a bit, rem- the teams have been a bit removed from the fans in the past and the the governing body has owned that relationship and I think that's probably different in some sports for a, for a football club. Uh, a fan belongs to that football club, you know, they, they, their identities with that football club. Yes, and in Formula One, other than Ferrari, most fans will follow a driver no matter where they go. They identify with a, a countryman or someone that they just like the way they race. Um, but the teams haven't always had that direct relationship. I think that's definitely changing and the new ownership of Formula One that's happened over the last year uh, is unlocking uh, digital channels that allow us to create content that we can put directly in the hands of Williams fans. You know, we, we held this 40th anniversary event at Silverstone last year uh, and had 50,000 people just come to see Williams and, and the heritage and the, the, the cars and the drivers from yesteryear. And, and that's pretty incredible for, you know, for a single team. So we know that there's that appetite out there um, for people to get closer to Williams. Um, and that's what we are we are focused on over the next few years. Yeah, for for us really, um, our brand's everything. So we are close to our fans that come to the stadium. But actually, for me, it's important to connect those fans that don't come to the stadium. So we're we're now a global brand. Um, we have a great website that actually to enjoy premium content, you have to register. So we can now start to see where where our global audience is. And we do have a function now for Saints Global that is. Um, looking at our new markets which are china africa india and obviously the states so actually it's becoming engaged with the bigger community not the smaller hampshire and and national fan base yeah and you've always had a national fan base and it's and the sport has changed quite a lot in, in recent years isn't it cricket in cricket <coughs> yes i guess it's the economics of our of our organization as well so um our remit is to grow the game of cricket we want to be uh, you know the number one sport I don't know if we'll ever get yeah. there I don't think we'll ever um, beat football but it's a, it's a stretch goal shall we say um, we're going to catch F1 first <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, but I think the more participants that we have whether they're playing the game attending the game following the game um, the more we have a relationship with those people then the more we understand how they want to play the game and, 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 and follow us um, and people don't have, you know, long stretches of time 
at the weekends now to play cricket so we need to find new ways to engage them um, in shorter timescales because we're not just competing with other sports we're competing with xboxes we're competing with mobile phones for people's time and and it's also as i say the economics of the of, of the the game because the more participants we have the more fans we have then the more investment we can attract from sponsors from broadcasters from government to invest in our game and part of that um, kind of underlying model is that if we can demonstrate to sponsors why it's more effective for them to spend their sponsorship money with us um, uh, in English cricket um, and not with other sports or with other brands and we can show them what they're getting for their for their investment then we can unlock budgets um, from those organisations that, that um, uh, haven't previously existed and I think the days of sponsorship we're seeing it across all sports now the days of sponsorship of a bit of hospitality and a bit of signage uh, for, a, for a city firm um, those budgets have, have gone and so we need to find new ways of, of attracting um, brands and helping them to achieve their brand aims with their involvement with our sport. And that's where the F1 fans quite different, Mark. In, uh, what both Matthew and Damien have just described is fans who also partake in that sport, whereas for a Formula mm. One fan it's they're never going to get behind the wheel of a Formula One car. So for them, us getting data into their hands so that they can understand more about the technology that's what excites them, not the fact that they're ever going to be able to drive a Formula One car. No, digital is an opportunity to take the fan as close as they exactly. can. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd like to think, especially in F1, through technology, that actually the fan could, and we'll cover this maybe later with opening data, through augmented reality yeah. and virtual reality, yeah. be able to compete against their favourite drivers at their favourite tracks. And, and we're seeing that, so, so eSports is, is, is going to be huge this, this season, has, has really exploded. There, we dipped our toes in the water last year and there's such an appetite amongst fans so that you could be racing the drivers on the weekend. Uh, in, in Azerbaijan this weekend, you could be racing them. Uh, and uh, it, there's going to be a huge growth in that. And as the technology gets better, we, we've already experimented with some technology where you can uh, you could be the person changing the wheel. Uh, you, you're on the wheel gun. Can you get a 1.92 second pit stop? Mm -hmm. uh, and we've done a bit of experimenting with the driver eye view, which is a little more tricky. You tend to be slightly above the driver. Um, but you get that experience of feeling like you're in the car. So, yeah, there's a lot of work being done in Formula One. We've already seen that with Zwift, haven't we, where people are able to yeah. race professional cyclists on a stage virtually, um, but uh, yeah, exactly. not actually be there. And, Mike, it sounds like, from what everyone's saying, that... It's, it's becoming actually a much more audience business that you're buying by sponsoring football, rugby, golf, any any sport. You're actually buying access to an audience, whereas before, as Damien and, and Graham said, you're actually buying a, a hospitality package and some bits around it. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and I think the greatest challenge that the majority of clubs are facing at the moment is making their revenue performance agnostic. Uh, there's, a, there's a huge amount of money that clearly goes on to the on-the-field side. Uh, but with attendances in stadiums starting to fall, uh, that, that model of come and, come and sit in our stadium and watch our football uh, is, is falling away. And so a lot of the engagement work that I'm seeing being done at the moment is very much focused around getting to know the fans and the individuals and what actually drives them to the stadium and what they want to do outside of the stadium and what their non-match day looks like as much as their match day. Because that's the information ultimately sponsors are now interested in. Who, who do you know? That we can that we can be a part of. What does your family look like? What is your global reach? Uh, and that very much drives back down to how do you capture that data? Uh, how do you understand more about those fans? And that's really where digital transformation becomes the answer. It sounds like that the the 
creation and the capture of data is going to be key. And, and in fact, <coughs> all of you now are like CIOs in Formula One. Formula, I remember when I got obsessed with Formula One in the 80s, Formula One was capturing data big style then and was just, I don't, I'm not sure we should ask how much data you're capturing, Graham. It's probably infinitesimal, isn't it? Well, the, the 1979 car that's just down there from us was the first connected car. Uh, it had a, uh, a very small data logger. It took 20 minutes to download one lap of data, 64K data logger. Ten years later, it was a 256K data logger. So it shows kind of the slow growth. Now we're generating, I mean, on a Friday, more than 10 gig of data per car over the whole weekend, 60 to 80 gig of, of telemetry data. Add everything else, you know, it's it's a huge amount more than that. And Matthew, it sounds like that's one of your key things, and, and you've been in Formula One as well, and now you're in football. Data is, is, is unlocking a lot of the things that you're, you're driving at Southampton Football Club. Yeah, data is important. Um, it's part of it, it's not everything. Uh, digital to the core, which is my strategy, looks at... Um, both collating that data, but more importantly, having good people. So people and process, uh, without that, you start to find when you start looking at this data, actually the, the quality of the data as well, uh, your sources need a lot of work to start fixing that. But the new insights it brings in, uh, we did a lot of work around uh, scouting and recruitment and found players that hadn't been looked at and had just dropped off the radar because um, they weren't the hot topic at the moment, and we've actually gone back to look at those players. And Damien, I imagine data capture is actually quite difficult. As you say, you don't you don't own the venue; you, you, you're a touring sport, as as it were. But I imagine it's just as important. Yeah. So I, I, our data collection is kind of born out of our um, performance area. So um, we capture every ball bowled in first class and in international cricket, and the video associated with it, and all of the metadata associated with it. So and it all goes into a nice big data warehouse where you can say give me every ball bowled at Virat Kohli that he played and missed at that was bowled by a right arm bowler back of a length around the wicket <laughs> on a Tuesday um, <laughs> and and then have sports science and medicine people and coaches looking at these to try and work out how to get him out and also trying to improve our players then we add to that overlay that with all of the Hawkeye telemetry which tells us how fast the ball is going out of the bowler's hand how fast it goes off the pitch where it ends up um, and then the revolutions on the ball are spinning and, and then we've got biometric data from the players now and GPS data from the players. Um, so that's just kind of increasing exponentially the amount of data that we collect. Um, but then that kind of trickles down into other areas of the game. So we, get, we, we have all of that information, but then we can collect all the recreational cricket data. So we, we collect data from um, most of the, the cricket matches that happen every weekend during the summer on a village green or in a park or, or wherever um, and in collecting that data we then by accident also have you know a quarter of a million cricketers uh, members of the general public uh, so then if we then add fan um, data and all of our numerous fans plus we put Wi-Fi, spectator Wi-Fi into the ground, so we know the, the spectators that are coming into the grounds that are also playing cricket, that are also coaches, and all of this information, all helps us understand um, massive, um, a, a kind of diverse um, set of dynamics about our game, about our sport, uh, and that can be ranging from um, just understanding, for example, where cricket's being played, and then we, we can use open source data sets to then say, well, are there any planning applications that are going to develop 
you know, housing estates on cricket grounds and therefore do we need to start working out where these cricket clubs can play other uh, locations um, or the telemetry we get from people using venues from spectator Wi-Fi are they using the venues in the way that they're using them because the venue is forcing them to do that or because they choose to use the venue like that um, I always use the example of an hour into a game at a, a, at a, a cricket match you tend to find that some of the children have got slightly bored of watching cricket if it's not exciting uh, in the first hour of play so then you find they've bought a little bat that's about six inches long they've screwed up a ball or a ball of paper and they found a bin and they've stuck it in the concourse and they're playing cricket so perhaps we should be looking at creating areas in venues where they can all play cricket if they want to and they can do it with professionals helping them or they can have organized games and and then we start to think about how that affects the the development of the venue um, so I guess it, it all makes, all this data collection makes us more evidence-based yeah. to then make evidence-based decisions on what's best for the game rather than an awful lot of sport is anecdotal and gut feel uh, and what, what all of this is trying to do is to turn it into evidence-based decisions. And everything you've just described is a 360-degree customer view that many of your peers in Absolutely. retail and travel and tourism tell me. And Mike, how much are the organisations using data to optimise the organisation, which again, when we talk to peers across other vertical markets, is is key, isn't it, as margins decrease in so many verticals? Yeah, very much so. And the, and the streamlining of operation, as, as Matthew touched on earlier on, is that, that combination of technology, people and process. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot going on in that space to understand the business protocols and how technology can enable that. Um, certainly a lot of the clubs that I'm working with now are centralising IT, uh, it sounds like something that should have been done a long time ago, uh, but for many, if the commercial director wants a new CRM, he goes and buys one. If the analyst wants a new scouting system, he goes and buys one. And with disparate data all over the business uh, and, and increased revenues and um, enhanced costs as a result of that. So even just bringing it into a central place where you can actually understand what role technology will play in the business and what that data will come out to, to help you drive it, as you say, at the moment you move from uh, being anecdotal and being, we will be better if we do this into, I can tell you how much that was. We can actually measure that revenue, we can understand that conversion rate, we can see more about the business through that piece and that really comes from driving a central strategy at it. Yeah. Mark, I wanted to mention something else around data. So I said the car has been instrumented since 1979. We've never actually put uh, any measurements on the humans until the last couple of seasons. and. We've started to put biometric measures on on the pit crew, um, and we've been talking about you know how we extend that into into the rest of the organisation, and how do we keep our people performing at their best, and when they not support them, so that if someone's unwell or or, or, or is under a lot of stress, uh, that, that you can deal with that. And and at the sharp end, how can you make sure that the fourth pit stop of the day is exactly the same performance as the first pit stop of the day? So we've started to look at human biometrics, which is which is really interesting. Something that I know that rugby has been doing for quite a long time really well and football's now getting into is is that instrumentation of, of the human data and, uh, and you've got to be responsible about how you use it but it's all about you know the performance around there so that's been a new interesting area for us. And it was interesting the CEO of Vitality Insurance was telling me yeah. how people are buying that data set off their organisation to help their businesses remain competitive and, and it, because that you know a lot, a lot of creative companies are going to Vitality to create the work environment on, in similar areas. Yeah it's funny you offer someone an Apple iWatch and they'll give you all their, uh, all their, all their health data. <laughs> Just one uh, follow-up on that from, from football that's a, that's a good example for that. One of the great challenges in the, 
football market at the moment is the inflated transfer fees and, and the amount of money you invest and where you find. So a lot of more investment and consideration has been given to scouting again and, and looking in, in far reaches of the world. The challenge there is the data sets aren't as rich. Uh, and you don't necessarily understand the flow or the, or the league that is being played in. So what does uh, a medical team looking at a hamstring injury for a player moving from one Premier League club to the other, how would you compare that to someone who's playing in Argentinian Division 2? Is it that that game is more physical, so they get injured more often? Is it that they're playing on harder pitches because of the conditions? How will that translate into him being a Premier League player? And how might that impact us if we purchase that player in treating any injuries they pick up in their early phases? Uh, and there's a, there's a huge amount of movement in that space in particular, looking to centralise and align data sets from a global, uh, a global game to find that next star, to find that next multi-million pound player, but pay a fraction of the price for them through understanding the data sets. Yeah, and I remember when I was, I, I was involved in a kart racing club in my, in my youth, uh, and actually sport is, is much like the airline industry, isn't it? Actually, the, 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 the focus on safety, protecting the sports person, protecting the fans was immense. And I imagine, I imagine you're all looking at ways to use data to protect those, those attendees or those people who are, are driving, kicking uh, or, or batting. And, and you know, from Formula One's perspective, motorsport is dangerous. It says it on the ticket, yeah. but at the same time, we we expect our fans to be able to go home afterwards having an amazing experience. Um, and so that's why if a wheel nut doesn't go on quite right, the car is immediately stopped by the team. Even though they probably could limp around a lap and still stay in the race, but uh, yeah, we've we've put a lot of effort on on driver safety. As you look around the cars here, you see that there's a huge effort on drivers, but also fans and marshals and the team. Uh, and the media who work there, yeah, a real focus on safety. If you go back even six years ago, um, a lot of information was just being written down in paper, kept for a couple of weeks, and then it, it would vanish. So we've actually put technology in now to track all our players, what they do, so we can correlate uh, injuries now from not what they've done performance-wise, but where they've done it, and that whole ecosystem, the environment, um, so we can learn. And actually, we. I did have, I'm not too sure if we still have it, it was the lowest soft tissue injuries in the Premier League. So um, that's really important that we can keep our players fit and healthy so they can perform at their and top. it goes back to the optimisation, doesn't it? Because the player is one of your most expensive assets and if you can uh, reduce the, the injury, you, you, you're utilising that asset more. I'm sure for they sure. might be called that. But <laughs> yeah, for sure. And for a, a club like Southampton, when we invest in a player, it's also its total cost of ownership. What, what can we unfortunately sell that player for so until we can uh, grow our commercial revenues and keep these players someone will come along with a ridiculous offer and what you do you have you have to sell them unfortunately it doesn't always seem to work that way we can't keep performing there so we need to generate more commercial revenue there's also a trickle down for us as well so as well as injury surveillance and making sure that you've got the fittest um, healthiest players on the pitch um, we do an awful lot of research around um, you know, I've got, got probably 11 years of Jimmy Anderson's spine MRIs, which can show the, the wear and tear on, on, on his spine over that period of time, which then feeds into insight as to um, what the best bowling action is um, for children and how to, tr how to coach children um, so, uh, more effectively so they don't get injured and so that they um, have a, a, a great experience throughout their kind of lifetime of playing cricket rather than picking up an injury early on and then, and then getting disillusioned with the sport or having chronic problems later in life. Graham, before we, we went, uh, 
turn on the recording devices. You and I were talking about uh, the caps come in Formula One, which in the last sort of six, seven years has been a real focus in Formula One is to reduce costs. How much is, it, is, is using your data helping you meet new regulatory environments that are coming into to sport all the time? Yeah, that's a really important, you know, regulations are really important uh, part of what, what we have to do and also to try and help the next generation of regulations that are going to kick in after 2020 um, to, to try and make it so that it's, the teams with the most money don't always win, which is, which is often a challenge in other sports as well. Um, we want to get back to the small you know, non-constructor teams can, can win races and win championships. Uh, so, yeah, I think the data will be feeding into that. And, and, and also for a team like us, what is going to put performance on the car? What's going to put the most performance on the car? Where should we put our money? And, and learning from things that don't necessarily work as sometimes happens, as anyone watching this season will realise, um, and, how, and how you turn that around, and can you turn it around in season, or have you got to wait for the next year's car, and then all those lessons need to feed in. So yeah, it's a really important part of what we do. And is that the same for you guys in your sports? Is it, it regulations are changing, and, and data is the way you navigate those? Absolutely. I mean, in, in um, cricket, we, for example, we capture all the data about every single head strike, a ball hitting a batsman on the head, um, and hitting him on the helmet, which goes into research and development about helmets and, and the best ways of um, constructing them, but also goes into concussion protocols and also research about um, concussion injuries. Uh, and, and all of that, again, changing that from a, an anecdotal um, type approach to an evidence-based approach to say right, here's all of the data and all of the videos so every single video clip of every single helmet strike in first-class cricket gets analysed um, and, and and that's just one example really. Yeah sim similar for us the medical side is very important so we work closely with the universities sharing data whether it's sleep or or physical activities but actually when you look at sharing data with our fans um, that's what we don't do well enough personally so wouldn't it be great and we touched on earlier with Graham and Formula One being able to e-race virtually should we not be showing our your favourite player how many miles he's run this week and that's what we don't do and that's where data can actually bring us closer to our fans so actually whilst it's used for medical purposes you could generalise it and use it for fan engagement. I think mm. there's been some reluctance from sports people in the past for their data to be public mm. uh, for obvious reasons. Either it gives <coughs> a competitor an advantage to know that something happened. I remember Mark Webber had a huge accident years ago and uh, he, I, I think he damaged his collarbone but he, he didn't even tell the team because uh, he didn't want any, anyone to know that. Uh, and so I think previous generations of sports people have been reluctant to have their, their data made public. Um, but I think the younger generation coming through are seeing that they can get a competitive advantage from the data and so they're more willing for it to be recorded. How it's used I think is still under discussion <coughs> but certainly they're more willing for that data to be captured whereas perhaps previous generations have not wanted that data. But it, for sure and it would have to be anonymized you know you could, or generalized you wouldn't give away your strategic oh, you differentiator. Domain, yeah. Yeah, you're right. But as a, as a fan and having a favourite player to know that he's run the equivalent from here to Southampton, when we're obviously in Oxfordshire at the moment, yeah. <laughs> um, would be great. Yeah, and it's amazing the power of social media now to create one-to-one -one relationships, isn't it? Whatever sport you look at, people talk with their favourite players in that, and players respond, don't they? And I guess that's that new generation of player coming through. Although there's plenty of older sports person who've embraced it as well. It's one of those things that helps tie together all of those those comments we've just been making. So if you take 
the medical data uh, and, and look at how we, we're managing nutrition, for example. If we look at a business-wide, if we understand what the pillar player is doing for nutrition and how that changes through the different stages of the year, different competition times, different weather, different environmental factors, and then are able to partner and commercialise the relationships we have with those nutritional vendors and then take that into the foundation and the charitable arms of our organisations as a health and wellbeing piece that can go back out to younger generations to understand what their favourite player eats on a match day and drive a health and wellness um, agenda. You've gone from performance analysis and understanding how we get the best out of our players on the pitch, which brings a natural benefit of of performance and results, hopefully. Uh, You've you've gone through commercial and and revenue generating, and then you've gone out into your community for impact. So it's a a simple example of how data can really drive across the course of the business, and it only needs to be one simple thing with that athlete at the heart of it. That's what the people are wanting to see. And we touched on it briefly, but you know, technology is, is, is really changing, isn't it? The opportunities your organisations can get from your venues, from the content, your entertainment. You, know, you produce lots of, as you said, outcomes that people want to read about, watch, listen to, or have you. How much is that part of your remit as CIOs that you're helping your organisations op- get more optim- optimum value from venues and everything? It's an irony, really, that, that when you go to a live sporting event, often you have a far less informed... You might have a fantastic mm. experience, but you have a far less informed experience. So... Um, yeah, we're continually searching for ways to put more information, more insight into the hands of of, of the fan and, and the connected fan. Um, and I'm glad to hear Damien say that because I thought it was an F1 problem that although you get you know the sounds and the sights when you're at the track, you've got less data than if you were at home mm. on TV. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad it's not just Formula One that has that problem. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, and I mean, you could get some interesting feedback loops if you made information available live in the stadium. So, for example, if you could see the heart rate of the batsman and the bowler could see the heart rate of the batsman, <laughs> you might get some interesting things happening. <laughs> but um, but just that insight, like, like Matt was saying about you know knowing how far um, somebody's run. So we know, for example, some batsmen. Uh, because they, um, are, are what you'd class a busy batsman, um, might in the course of scoring a century run a half marathon, um, compared to other batsmen who would just stand there and not run but smack boundaries and, and not run at all. Um, and and that that plays that's interesting insight for the for the spectator potentially, but it also plays into as, as as Mike was saying other aspects. So that affects how that particular batsman would train. So if they're training for a half marathon every time they had to bat, but in twenty three yard uh, sprints, then then that plays massively into a training plan. Um, but the whole kind of um, emphasis on on getting as much information to make the game as engaging as possible for the people in the stadium but also sat at home as well um, is yeah is kind of a, a goal of ours. I think it transcends sort of infrastructure application data as well. One of the great challenges in football um, is the broadcast deal and what you can and can't do in the stadium. Uh, so whilst it's, a, it's very much a, a key and strategic part of, of football club's revenues, not being able to show controversial replays of a particular incident in the ground uh, frequently leads to people texting someone at home or texting someone who's watching it at home on Sky Sports through the broadcast deal to get their view as to, as to what that was. So that, that piece about the, the less immersive experience in the ground is, is difficult. The combination factor there that then cuts across those layers is uh, the great challenge of stadiums generally is high-density Wi-Fi or a DAS network or uh, the fact that you get throttled for, uh, for backhaul and capability. So that fan then says, well, I haven't seen anybody able to see the replay on the screen. Let me go to my phone, let me contact social, 
maybe dip into other avenues I could get that content, but they're struggling for it there as well because they're not able to access that <laughs> with the number of people in the ground or, or, or whatever it may be. Uh, so then a, a big part of where people are looking to go is what can we do to the base level infrastructure to address that problem and get the people who are in the stadium access to that, which the people have outside the stadium and combine both experiences. You get the analytics, you get the data that you'd have if you were sat at home with an iPad next to you on the TV, whatever it may be. But you've also got the live atmospheric experience of actually being at the ground. And, and there's a big challenge with football when you look at it. Most a football fan will turn up, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes before the match, have two pints, and then he's off pretty much five minutes after the last whistle. So for us as well, it's how do you get that fan to want to come to the stadium and stay longer, but also more often, not just for football events. So today we can quite easily tell that um, someone will turn up here, like he drink, what beer he drinks, has he got a season ticket, um, has he bought a shirt this season, so we can do targeted advertising. But actually, when you look at the future of technology with IoT, um, beacons and bots, that's where really you're going to le leverage these people to come more because they'll be excited to engage with your technology not just come and watch a football. And in Formula One, we've we've not really, in the past, been involved at all at the track. So that's all handled separately by the governing body and so on. But what we're finding now, this conference centre, we do regular race day events here um, and, and creating that experience for people where they can talk to an engineer at the track or hear from one of the drivers. Um, we've now put simulators upstairs, uh, VR simu simulators, so that they get that immersive experience. Um, and still, they get to see all the cars that you know for, over the history and the, and the trophies and so on. But creating a really good race day experience away from the track, they get to see the telemetry data that our engineers are using on the pit that creates a, a unique experience. And so we have started to care about, you know, that stadium experience. Um, and it, it allows more fans to get closer to the team. Um, and, and we're doing that much more regularly now on a race day. And it sounds like you're taking a lot of the lessons already from the, the, the technology impact has had on retail and hospitality yeah. sectors. Yeah, absolutely. And also really is connecting, as, as you touched on, the person who, who can't go to that coalface and watch that sport through augmented and virtual reality and how can you bring the armchair fan much closer to the sport? The business community has learned a great deal from sport uh, and, moved, and taken a lot of the lessons in the way sport leads and, and works. Cross-functional teams to me when I look at them has learned that, that that's something that it, correlates very closely to, to the way sports work the whole idea of one team uh, and I've, I've, I've talked to CIOs in every vertical market insurance and what have you where they, they love that idea of one team no matter what we do we're one team how do you make sure in your organizations that your your IT team that you're you're leading day in day out are seen as peers to the players the drivers the engineers who are the who are the stars of the show so we, we exist to turn potential into excellence in everything we do. So um, if my team wants to do work, there's no such thing as an IT project, it's a business project. So it's, it needs to align with our strategic differentiator, football, commercial growth, or key operational improvements. Uh, we're lucky enough to have a really good steering board that um, all our work goes through. So just to reiterate, it is a business project that we're running and it has to have direct contribution to the performance of the club. So that's a real drive. I challenge all my staff also to be leaders and not followers. So we have to excel in everything we do. Um, you find often, it, and in most sports I think, because you're actually working in a pinnacle of an industry, 
you get more of a love for what you do. So people are willing to work longer and harder to achieve that because ultimately the more work you do, the more more benefits you see. I, don't I know was about to ask that. Do you, do you find in your teams that you, you have cricket lovers in your IT team and, and Formula One fans and, and what have you? Um, there are. We do have cricket lovers in, in the team. We also have people who don't know anything about cricket. And actually, <laughs> there's it's a double-edged sword. If you have a, a cricket fan, then they might be a bit starstruck when they have to go and yeah. deal with the players or deal with the coaches. Um, so it's not always helpful, but um, uh, I think uh, it's it's interesting. IT in um, a lot of organisations um, can be a hindrance to the kind of innovation that a high-performing sport wants to, to do. So IT are very good at, you know, if somebody has an idea, they're very good at turning up and saying, brilliant, fill out this big pile of paper in triplicate, build a business case, we'll gather some requirements from you, we'll go looking for a package solution and then we'll deliver it late and it'll do 50% of what you want mm -hmm. it to do. Um, so when, when you've got an, a lot of sports science and medicine and highly motivated people, um, that are there to think of, you know, new ways of winning matches, making better athletes, um, and leaving no stone unturned to to uh, make sure that 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 we we get the best teams on the, the pitch. Then, then you get a whole raft of ideas, and you need a kind of an innovation life cycle and innovation way and rapid application development way of dealing with those ideas and very quickly proving whether they're good ideas or bad ideas and if they're good ideas you scale them quickly and if they're bad ideas you're ruthless and just say no we're going to bin that one and if they they might show some promise but then you've got to put some really harsh parameters around it and say okay we're going around the loop again to prove whether or not it's a good or bad idea um, so we we, I think we've been on um, a bit of a journey from five years ago where we were that traditional IT organisation to we're now working absolutely, you know, lockstep with our um, kind of post-grads and, and all of these various people who are um, thinking the unthinkable and developing applications really very quickly, you know, in kind of one or two or three um, week life cycles to, to prove these cases and then very quickly scale. And because a passion for a sport can also come with a bit of rose-tinted glasses, can't it? Yeah. I think Mike admitted very bravely on this podcast once before that he worked for West Ham but supported Arsenal. Quite right. Quite right. Um, <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, I think, I think there's something to be said for the balance as well. Um, certainly when I was working at Arsenal as we moved between Highbury and Emirates, uh, there, was a, there was a much heavier um, quantity of people who were Arsenal fans and obviously they scaled up for that transformation. It brought in a lot of Arsenal fans into that, into that piece as you say, you, you then lose a little bit of objectivity uh, because you're thinking of it emotively as a, as a fan of the club yourself and what would you like to see as a fan rather than what is potentially the right decision for the business and what is actually going to help the, the pieces at the end. I mean, circling back to the where does your IT team sit, uh, I, I would echo these guys' comments in that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, IT actually meant servers, printers, desktops. That's how it was seen by football club boards. That's how it was seen by sporting organisation. There was a disconnect. Over at the training ground, they're running a performance football team. And here at HQ, we're running a commercial business. There wasn't a huge overlap between those two things. That's really broken out and changed now. Uh, and, and certainly uh, from some of the clubs I'm working with now, there's a very simple mission, uh, which is about on-the-field performance and how we can support that. So when you deploy an IT engineer to go to the training ground to fix a camera to help them record training, 
they are welcomed and embraced because you're helping part of that journey. Whether you're installing a new ticketing system to get more fans to, to more readily be able to buy tickets to get them into the stadium to create a better atmosphere on a match day to help support the team, you're helping the team. Uh, and, and most businesses are starting to realign themselves to we need to harmonise uh, what's happening in the, in the performance side and what's happening in the development and the commercial side. It really irritates me that I don't know how long have I been in Formula One 30, uh, in uh, in IT thirty years or something. We're still okay. You didn't quite use the alignment, uh, but I just heard Mike use it. You know, <laughs> how do you align IT with the business? I mean, if I'm glad we're still we're not we're still not talking about that. Just to, to to back up what Mike said, but the fact that we're still considering RIT considered part of the team, and and in fact, I hate using the language of the IT team and this team, and because the, then it's not one team, is it? So I don't I don't allow my management uh, group to talk about the IT as function as a team, because we are the Williams team, and we are all here for for a uh, for a single purpose, and that's to get Sir Frank Williams back to the front of the group. Hundred percent agree, Graham. It's it's really important um, what we're doing and bedding um, our data analysts and our data data architects within those functions. So they spend a day a week with sports science and medical, and likewise, their data scientists come into IT and work in IT for a day. So actually, you start it's a win-win. You are one organisation. Yeah. We spoke on the last podcast about uh, what the role of technology is in that redefinition. Um, which was a simple metric which said if you take your football match day and take technology away from it, where do you end up? How are you selling your tickets? What do your big screens look like? How are your fans even getting in? What does access control look like? What do you know about that fan? Uh, it really helps people to understand that actually technology, as you say, isn't a silo department. It isn't just something in the corner. It's, it's in ticketing. It's in commercial. It's in hospitality. It's all across your business and, uh, and become a genuine business engaged piece and an important cog in that wheel. So I just want to make sure we don't get a big head in, in technology, right? So <laughs> we've talked to the chief engineer and said, if all systems went, IT systems went down, as the race is about to start, you're on the starting grid, the lights are going off, it's all very exciting, bang, all the systems go down. Can you still race? Yes. It'd be very difficult. You're not going to have the data, you're not going to have the telemetry that tells you whether the tires are wearing and you know everything that you need, but you'd still go racing. The sport would still happen. So I think sometimes in technology, we, we not that we think we're more important than we are, but just we, we put too much of a focus on, on, on what we do rather than the entire team. But we don't test those scenarios, do we? You wait till they happen and everything. I'm too scared goes. to switch everything off yeah. as the cars are lining up on the grid. <laughs> it's not the best time to do no. it, is it, two o'clock on a Sunday? <laughs> but I imagine one of the tightropes you guys have to walk is, is technology is not cheap. Mm. Uh, and and it's, as, you, as, you, as you've just said, it's so essential. Um, but of course, the the the, the fans, the, the the players, the the sponsors, and everything—they want to see the money on the field, on the track, where wherever. How, how do you walk that tightrope in your organisations to to balance that, to demonstrate the value, and demonstrate also that this isn't an this isn't just a nice to have cost; it's an essential. I'll go first because it's very easy for us, and then the others can talk. <laughs> We, our, our metrics are, does it make the car quicker? I mean, genuinely, that is on the form. Will this make the car quicker? Um, and if it does, then we would, and, and in our IT strategy, we will do everything we can to deliver the things that will make the car quicker. And there's other things you have to care about, like reputation and risk and, and so on. But our ultimate metric is, is this going to add performance to the car? And if it isn't, we have to question, should we be doing it? We've got a very similar kind of approach. So. Does this get more people playing, attending, following cricket? Does it make better cricketers or does it make the game safer and more enjoyable? It's that simple. 
for Southampton Football Club. I touched on it earlier, actually, our strategic differentiator. Will it make our players perform better? Will it generate more revenues? Or will it optimise our business? Um, so the only advice, really, for me is to secure funding for initiative is when you go to the board, is not to tell them. They're not interested in all, all the bits underneath. They sell them the vision, tell them the benefits, the costs and the risks. If they're quite clear with that, um, they'll hopefully grow to trust you in the future. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo all, all of those points, really. It's about having simple filters that will actually allow you to, to, to put these these things through, You know, particularly with the... Um, things like smart stadia as, as phrases and, and concepts floating around just the simple one that one client is using is does this make our stadium smarter um, so is it that we're putting IoT elements in for a particular reason has it got an outcome has it got a purpose does it make us smarter does it help fan engagement if there's a tick and there's something you can drive off the back of that without business goals you're through if you're deploying something that you think is cool or something that might have have some benefit but you can't really prove it going back to our data uh, moving from anecdotal to evidence that's those are the things that will get kicked out. And Mark, I think that's the big differentiator for sporting CIOs, which is you know who, who you're talking to. When I talk to other CIOs outside of sport, they don't always have that clarity. It was really interesting mm. to hear both Damien and, uh, and 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 Matt say exactly the same thing about their particular organisations they're in now, and you know Mike echoing it for a number of organisations. There wasn't always that clarity, I think, uh, in 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 sport, but there is now. It's all about that pointy end, and I think for Formula One, it's always been like that. And that's, why people are, that's why we all love sport, isn't it? Actually, in a very confusing world, particularly at the moment, actually there is a clarity about sport of runs, a goal, uh, or a race win that come the weekend we, we kind of all need. And, it's, it, it, and then that's also then feeding back into business, as you, as you just uh, put. Uh, which was my next question, which is, do you feel, and you're all sporting CIOs, and, and most of you actually spent the bulk of your career as, as sporting business technology leaders, do you think you need a different perspective to survive and, and to be as successful as you gentlemen have from your CIO peers? I, I have only um, spent about the last five years in sport. I've, I've done what I call my fair share of work on the dark side in tobacco <laughs> and defence and investment banking and management consulting. So, <laughs> so and we're still living into that. What a combo! <laughs> so, um, and it's interesting going into a sporting organisation because I think there are, there are a couple of dynamics that, that um, I experienced which are that um, can I be deeply cynical and say that a, a lot of my career has been spend it, it spent convincing accountants and lawyers that they've had a really good idea whereas in sport there's this kind of growth mindset there's this um, uh, kind of almost coaching mentality where um, somebody will challenge hard and and test um, whether what you're saying is 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 right but then once we're all agreed that that's a good idea then we're all in and and, and we'll do it um, which has been massively refreshing working in sport the, the the things that I've brought from kind of the corporate world are the the um, kind of disciplines around you know IT service management and those kind of things to just get that sorted whereas Previously, there, there potentially hasn't been necessarily that that industry expertise to be able to do that. Um, but I've been able to achieve so much more with that kind of growth mindset in, in the organisation and in the sporting world than I think I um, might have achieved in in other areas. I joined the Benetton Formula One team in 1997, thinking I'd do it for two years, get it on my CV, and then go get a proper job in an industry similar to the ones that that Damien's just listed. 
And uh, what I found is I just, I, I love the sporting environment that, you know, even when times are tough, you know that the next race or later in the season, you'll be able to improve things. And in worst case, next year, you, you, you'll work, you know, it's not always about working harder, you'll work smarter and, you, and, you'll, and you'll turn things around. And I've, you know, I've seen the highs of championship wins and I've seen the lows of, uh, of having the slowest car. But winning's always great, isn't it? That's why I say. I've only had it two seasons in my 21. So yeah, yeah there's a lot of uh, non-winning you have, to, you have to put up with. So I, I got into our Formula One probably about 15 years, purely by accident, and I was lucky enough to be in football for the last six years. So um, it is hard work. You have to sacrifice weekends. Um, but with that, hopefully you do see some reward. I yep. think with sport as well, you have to be at the p pinnacle of that industry. So you need to reinvent yourself every 12 months, every year, every season. Therefore, really, it's every six months because you need to start thinking about mm. it. So it's constant change and, and very fast. Yeah, we're already designing next year's car. So, you know, yeah, and that started in February actually. So, like Matt says, you, you, you don't wait a whole season to then decide what you're going to do the next season. You're already working on it. I think speed's really important in the metrics we've just been speaking about. The first one being you, know, you have a match day Saturday, you have a match day Wednesday, a match day next Saturday. Uh, so there's always something going on that's going to keep something going, keep people driving, people are ramping up, ramping down from match days and keeping that bit through but the instant nature of those results can also drive revenue decisions so one of the, the metrics for me as to why sport is uh, perhaps more simplistic in the boardroom with the outcomes and the focus and the, and the filters is one place in the Premier League between 13th and 12th even could be worth a million pounds in, in revenue so that, that, that tiny difference to from the outside perspective if you need to invest a hundred thousand pounds over, over a term and, and you potentially get a million pounds back in the next six weeks as the season's coming to a close, it's a lot easier to sign that off because you're going to see a quick return on that investment, which is perhaps... Sadly, that's yeah. different in Formula 1 because the, the amount of money between the places is, is, is not huge. And the amount it would take you to gain 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 of a second is huge. So sometimes you have to settle earlier in the season <laughs> than you'd like uh, and, and rather focus on the following year and producing a much better car the following year. Um, you jokingly said about moving on to get a proper job and, and you never got around <laughs> to doing that but I mean do do you all get to enjoy a game or a race or, or a match or is it all is, is, has it become to a degree a job it's both really isn't it? I think in the early days especially for me being involved in the coalface you yes you enjoyed it but you also worried a lot because you had to perform uh, now I'm lucky enough to have a team that, that run this with football. The benefit or the great thing with football is the, the sport's much more accessible. So for staff, um, they can go and see that game. Uh, Formula One's a bit more of a challenge because you usually got to hop onto an aeroplane yeah. and go halfway across the world. So yes, you do enjoy it. Um, if I don't attend a match, you'll probably find me marching up and down my lounge <laughs> waiting for it to start so I can listen to it. So um, I just wish it was more accessible. Damien, do you get to enjoy a game of cricket? Um, enjoy. Um, <laughs> I think Such a strong word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, think, so short. <laughs> um, it's interesting, I was discussing this actually with a colleague of mine and we were wondering how long it would be before we would be able to, you know, if, if, if we stopped working in cricket, how long it would take before we could just sit and watch a game of cricket as an not an impartial observer, but as a, a kind of a, a person with no baggage associated with it and enjoy it. I think associated with the job, 
brings an awful lot of baggage. It brings an awful lot of concerns about and, and knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes, yeah. which um, can can kind of alter your your view of the game. Um, but I, it, it's so much more enjoyable than than working in a proper job. Uh, it doesn't feel like a proper <laughs> Especially job. Especially afterwards. Uh, after yeah, and it doesn't feel like a proper job. You know, I, I get to walk into an office at Lords every day. Um, I get to deal with some of the best athletes in the in the world and the best the people who are at the absolute pinnacle of their career, or the pe- uh, people who are absolutely passionate about engaging children, engaging women, engaging people with disabilities in a wonderful sport. So, yeah, it, you don't get that in, in a proper job. <laughs> yeah, I struggle to enjoy races, certainly at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I get nervous when, you're, when we're leading and I get nervous when we're nowhere near the front. Um, I love being in the sport. So a lot, a lot of Damien's just described, I love being in the sport and, and, and seeing so many amazing professional people who are just so dedicated and focused um, but yeah when it comes to the, the race itself I'm very often pacing or mm. on one or two occasions this season and last season I go out and cut the grass because I can't watch anymore because it's too frustrating <laughs> uh, and a lot of it's because you know that behind the scenes there are 650 people who've put their heart and soul into that car and it's it we're not at the performance level that we want to be and and so that yeah there's a very definite difference, you know, in 2014 when we were regularly on the podium on a Monday morning, there's a very different, serious difference between what it was like then and what it's like this season when, you, when, when things are tough. Um, yeah, people tend to talk about it less and they're just heads down, focused. We've got a number of projects going on to look at how we, how we turn around this season and how we make sure next year's better. Um, and so, yeah, you, you tend to stop enjoying the races because you're very focused on, right, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen again? You touched on a really interesting point there about the professionals, and I guess in some ways you're quite akin to your CIO peers in, in healthcare or, or scientific research, where you are surrounded by so many great minds, great passionate people who are, as you say, keep moving forward. And, and, and that is an addictive world to live in, isn't it, in, in any of those spheres? Yeah. It is, and it has a massive impact. Um, so just results on the, on, on the pitch can have a massive impact on the morale of the organisation, yeah. even though, Definitely. you know, those people, half of those people might be involved in, in, you know, the county game, or they might be involved in the, you know, the recreational game, or they might be involved in governance, or, you know, those kind of aspects of the game. So they don't actually have, you know, any kind of control over what's happening for the England team on the pitch. But results for the England team on the pitch massive, massively affect their, their um, kind of morale, and, and, and it, it, it's quite difficult at times to, to separate those things and, and to you know carry on as if everything's all right you know if, if, we're, if we're not getting the results on the pitch. One of the interesting things for me of late uh, having got out into a portfolio world is I've got so many teams to follow <laughs> and that, that for so many, many people in so many different sports it's, uh, it, it makes for quite a frantic weekend but it does help me structure the Monday morning calls to call those who have won first to give those who have lost a little bit more time to get over it before we need to pick up and uh, pick up and do something else. Uh, it, it cannot be ignored that we're a group of chaps uh, but women's sport is booming cycling football cricket rugby all of them doing incredibly well IT needs uh, increased diversity how are you uh, working on that diversity agenda in your organizations so from a a cricket perspective uh, I I guess it goes back to the evidence base as well so understanding who's playing cricket where and when we, we actually have evidence of the fact that you know not enough um women and girls playing cricket 
um, and we need to grow that. We can see the areas where the, um, uh, where it's working and the areas where it's not working. Um, we hosted the Women's World Cup last year um, and had a fantastic result there. But actually, the, the interesting thing for me about that whole thing was the final at Lords was a sellout. And the crowd that was there um, were families and children, um, not necessarily a traditional um, cricket crowd, um, which was hugely, hugely inspiring. Um, but the, 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 the whole kind of um, use of data to understand our game, you know, we've done a lot of research, as has football and rugby, about the fact that if, if somebody doesn't pick up a cricket bat by the time they leave a primary school, then the chances are they never will have any kind of association with cricket. Nobody turns around in their 40s and says, what's this strange game with people dressed in white on a cricket? I think I'll go and learn how to do that. Nobody does that. But if you've played it by the time you leave primary school, then you may carry on playing it or you may pick it up again at a later stage or maybe if you have a family you may get your children involved in it um, so it's crucially important with that evidence um, for us to we introduced um, all-stars cricket um, last year where programs directly um, targeted at five to eight year olds and to um, girls um, specifically as well women's softball festivals and things like that to get as many people involved and then yeah I guess it's kind of closing that loop on the the evidence base and then um, creating programs and creating um, an environment that people want to go to. That's the really important the, the environment so we are working with schools we think that's the place to start so we have um, STEM programs that are showing young women why um, you know, STEM subjects are so important, um, but showing them the kinds of roles there are. Everyone thinks about the, the engineer sitting on the pit wall and there are, there are people who are buying the carbon fiber that's going to be used on the car or who are um, manufacturing or race engineers and there's no reason why more women shouldn't be in, in those roles. So we, we, ha we, we take almost a thousand young people through this facility every year, either having a, a single day or a week out of school um, or we, we do um, uh, apprenticeships and university type uh, apprenticeships where someone will come and spend a whole year with us. Uh, we run the uh, um, uh, Autosport Young Engineer of the Year Award um, and we've had uh, uh, real, real success in, in, in showing young women why STEM, because often young girls, my, my daughter was doing computer science uh, and she was the only girl in the class of 30 and that often happens and it kind of discourages them. And so we, I brought her in here to meet four of the young female engineers who'd just graduated and had just joined Williams and she was so inspired by them and that's what we need. We need role models mm. and we need opportunity. Uh, and we need to create that environment, as, as Damien just said, and that's, that's what Williams are really focused on. We're, Claire Williams has said we're not going to hire someone because they're male or because they're female, but we want to create the opportunities that young women can see that, that this is a great sport for them. Um, and uh, because you miss out, there, there's so many skills you miss out on if you, if, if you end up being an all-male uh, environment. And Formula One has obviously got the worst reputation around this table. Um, but it's something that we're actively addressing because we, we want that diverse uh, workforce. And right here, right now, football, as you say, Formula One got quite blo <laughs> blokey reputations. Is it hard to, to get women candidates to come forward and, and join your technology teams or, or, or are they enticed by the, the glamour and the, the excitement and the opportunities of the sports? I think the big challenge, especially for Southampton Football Club, when what, 84, 83% of our fan base is male, um, but really proud that we're actually this year we're um, applied to enter the Women's Super League so we will have a 
Saints-Girls team next year. I touched back to what Graham said really is um, it needs to start back at school. So if you employ the same, we'll always be the same. Um, if you want to be at Pinnacle and do strategic stuff, you need to try and employ different people. So it's finding good people. So when I recruit, it's not always their expertise, but also their potential. So if the potential's there, but it's hard to find, especially today, those people that aren't the norm, the diversity, unless we start getting back into education and getting these people involved at an yep. early age. I think from a wider sporting perspective, to some extent, we, we should look at the fact that women's professional team has not been a career uh, and a, a viable career previously. Um, so if you take football clubs, they're waking up very quickly to that and, and the new Women's Super League is, is really driving that. But we touched earlier on about our passion for sports and how we identify with it and we, and we love it. And, and that those role models are there for us as those role models develop and as the ability to play professional sports as a woman becomes commercially viable and roles around that, analysts, medical staff, all the things we've already touched and on. And IT more importantly, which is... Absolutely. Uh, starts, starts to have those sorts of roles available. You'll see sort of a cross-pollination of, of people going in both directions. Men working with the women's teams and women working with the men's teams at, at all levels throughout organisations. But as you say, starts with that generational piece of um, now there are, uh, the Lord's example, going to the World Cup final, there are young girls watching England win the World Cup in a thrilling match who are now engaged in cricket, who may now look at a job with ECB and say, oh, I'd love to work there, I went to Lords that time, and it was, it was brilliant. Uh, and that's because the, the pinnacle of the game is, is really developing itself to give them those role models. I think that's a really good point, actually. Um, the, the lack of a um, professional game in a lot of sports for women means that you might have a national team, but if somebody drops out of that national team, then they're going back to recreational sport. They're not going back to their professional club. So it's been massively important for the Welsh Cricket Board to, to start building that professional league that um, women cricketers can play in so that you know if they are dropping out of the England team, they go back to a professional game. They have a living in, in um, cricket. And, and that will only increase. And interest in, in that sport and that national women's game um, has grown massively with uh, two years now I think we've done the Kia Super League and it'll yep. grow and then um, come 2020 with our new 100 ball um, cricket there'll be a, a women's version of that as well It's uh, it's, it's fascinating to see that first had my, my family are very cricket heavy my wife plays county cricket her sister-in-law is Anya Shrubsoll who was the, the lady who took the six wickets in the World Cup finals we've got immersed in both sides of that <laughs> both sides of that story and as you say they drop out of the, that England side even as recently as three years ago and you went back to your county team, it was unpaid, uh, there may be some expenses available, but uh, quite often living in Somerset, as we do, you'd be travelling to Yorkshire, you'd be travelling to Durham uh, on a Saturday to play a game on a Sunday with, with no pay, with nothing coming off the back of that for, for, the, for the ladies who aren't in that, in that elite squad. Uh, and so that's quite a hard sell for people to do over a long period of time, to commit that much time and travel to something that is um, almost not even semi-professional. And, and the steps forward in that regard have been, have been absolutely huge from, from ECB in particular in that regard. And motor racing drivers has obviously been very much underrepresented. I, I'm focused on the things I can influence, and that's bringing young women into, into IT and into engineering. Um, but there are a number of initiatives now and uh, to, to get young women, because there is no physical reason that they can't uh, uh, do well in, in, in racing. What tends to happen is you need funding 
when you're 11, 12, 13 in karting, that's when we lose a lot of young women out of the sport. Um, and what we need is all these companies who say they have a diversity uh, uh, program, they're sponsoring the young boys once they leave karting and not, and not the young girls. And so, uh, yeah, we're putting, uh, there's a lot of good work being done in motorsport now to, to make sure that those opportunities exist for young women. Um, and the FIA are taking it very seriously, so the governing body, um, because we're missing out. We're missing out on good races. Mm -hmm. yeah. Damien Smith, Mike Bondi, Matthew Reynolds and Graham Hacklin, thank you for letting us stand pitch and trackside review on the Horizon CIO podcast. Graham and Williams, thank you for hosting this week's podcast, and thank you for the 1986 season. Nelson Piquet's third title was one of my favourite seasons as a young Formula 1 fan. Uh, to share your thoughts on being a CIO and how to bring innovation and leadership together, contact me, Mark Chillingworth, on LinkedIn or Twitter. A full article will be published on, of this debate on horizonbusinessinnovation.com website. Thank you for listening.